Well, hey everyone. Welcome to episode 211 of F-Stop, Collaborate and Listen. Today's guest is an emerging artist in the nature and landscape photography world. I've been really loving her work and I have been quite eager to sit down and have a chat with her. Carolyn Chang lives in Toronto, Canada and uses photography as an artistic release from her responsibilities in the corporate real estate world. Her photography has really grown into something quite spectacular in the short time that she's been going after it, and I think listeners will take away a lot from this week's conversation. Grab a coffee, a beer, or some other adult beverage and enjoy learning from Carolyn's insights on today's show. Before we get started, I wanted to let listeners know about an exclusive offer made available to you. We have partnered with Nature Photographers Network, the internet's premier landscape and nature photographers website that's chock full of articles and engaging forums dedicated to our craft and art form. NPN is now offering podcast listeners a free 30-day trial to the platform plus 20% off their first year of membership. Just head over to naturephotographers.network forward slash f-stop or find a link in the show notes to get started with your free trial. Okay, let's get to the show. All right, Carolyn Chang, it is so cool to have you on the podcast. Hey, Matt, it's a pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me and congratulations on all the success you've had with the podcast and for giving you know so many photographers um, voices. Uh, on the show, you know, it's a, it's my pleasure, and it's it's a it's a, been a really fun passion project, and you know, it's it's fun to to see where it's gone over the years, and I'm just really happy to be able to to promote um, art and photography such as yours. So so thanks for taking time out of your busy schedule to 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 rant with me. <laughs> happy to do so. <laughs> so so first of all, let me just say I am a huge fan of your work. Um, and I don't just say that uh, because you're you're friends with my friend David Thompson, but um, I think even before I knew you were friends with David's, I really enjoyed looking at your work, and um, I've seen your your path and your journey grow over the last couple of years, and it's been really exciting to see your work transform into what it's become. And so, um, kudos to you for for all of your success. Oh wow! Thanks so much. I really appreciate that. Um, you know what? I think David's going to really like that he has a halo effect now. <laughs> he does kind of do that, you know. He he has that effect on people. It's like he's like uh like Midas, you know, whatever he touches turns to gold. So <laughs> Oh my god, you're going to let that go to his head. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, he'll he'll slip me like a like a like a five spot on the table. <laughs> anyway. Don't, don't let don't let Miles hear this. Oh yeah, I'm I'm sure he'll get super <laughs> jealous. <laughs> Well, so for people that aren't lucky enough to have been familiarized with your photography and you as a person, uh, tell us a, a little bit about yourself. Sure. Um, so I am the chief operating officer for Royal LePage. So that's a Canadian business. So for your U.S. listeners, probably the most comparable company would be Coldwell Banker. Uh, so we are a national residential real estate franchisor with about 18,000 agents across the country. Um, and my role is to work with our senior leadership team on the overall strategy and business plan for the year, and then operationally to ensure we've got the right services, everything's running smoothly, 
I definitely don't do this by myself. You know, we've got a great team. We all work together to make this happen. Um, and so kind of like Jeremy Jackson, I think one of your earlier guests said, my job requires to me to be strategic, analytical, work at a pretty fast pace. So photography for me is really a creative outlet and a stress reliever. That's amazing. Um, yeah. And then in terms of like how I got into um, landscape photography, I kind of probably my late teens, my early 20s, I really started getting into hiking um, and then kind of transitioned into hiking big mountains. And the first time I was at altitude was a non-traditional glacier pass onto the Inca Trail and then a week long hike at altitude amongst the local villages afterwards. So that was all between four and five thousand meters or 13 to 16,000 feet. Um, so I'm not quite as avid as you, Matt, with your 114ers, I think, <laughs> but you know, I've done a couple and, and that's kind of, I think where my first love and passion, uh, came in. And then I moved to Toronto. All my friends here were really into inline speed skating marathons, cycling and racing. And I got into that. I love that. I love the physicality of it. Um, but sometimes with racing, there are crash actually training more. So there are crashes. And so one day I got onto my bike and I, it just wasn't comfortable to sit anymore. And, um, you know, honestly, even to this day, I still kind of have problems if I sit for a really long time. So even though I look normal, <laughs> you know, I can't do a lot of that high intensity activity anymore. I can kind of only do more of that, the lower intensity stuff. Um, and so, you know, with glass half full perspective, that was really when um, my photographic journey uh, began. Because I used to train 10 to 12 hours a week, and I was like, oh my goodness, what am I going to do with myself now? Um, and I thought, well, what are the things that I love to do? I love to travel. I used to always take photos. I had these Flickr albums, and I wrote these travelogues, you know, told funny anecdotes and shared about the culture. And I thought, well, why don't I try and do that, but just at, you know, a higher level? So that's yeah. really how I kind of got into everything. Wow, that's amazing. So when did you finally decide to pick up the camera and take it? take it seriously i think um it was towards the end of 2014 uh beginning of 2015 wow that's that's wild you're the, like the third person i've talked to in this month that just started photography in 2015 <laughs> well i mean i always had a camera I mean, kind of growing up and like i was the family photographer and i liked doing it but yes yeah interesting i don't know what was in the zeitgeist that year yeah 2015 must have been <laughs> the year <laughs> That's amazing. Well, one thing I'm super curious about hearing kind of your background in, you know, the corporate world, mm -hmm. <clears throat> I'm curious, you know, how have you been able to leverage your, your, the things that, that you've learned and grown into, um, in your corporate life into, uh, your photography or in, or in improving your photography? Interesting. Hmm. Um, well, I mean, I definitely, I run, um, well, my team, but our, our team together, we run royallepage.ca. So um, I'm definitely involved in a lot of the design and stuff like that. So I think probably elements of that, like, you know, I was informally practicing um, mm -hmm. look and feel creative and design, that kind of stuff. Um, I think the other thing is, you know, I've probably always been a little bit like this, but my work for sure kind of requires this. So it's um, really seeing patterns and information kind oh, of figuring out trends. And I think that you probably would have noticed in my photography, I definitely really like more of the intimate landscape, 
abstracts and that kind of thing. So I think when I'm up in the air, like that's what I naturally gravitate towards. So I think it was like part of who I am, but it's definitely um, a requirement to, you know, develop further in my work. Interesting. Yeah. Mm -hmm. You know, when I think about myself and the many positions that I've had in leadership over the years in healthcare, I think uh, for me, it's like, you know, learning how to, you know, work with people in a, in a team environment yeah. and, and, and a high stress and, and, you know, it helps you put things into perspective, but I think it also helps you, I don't know, further appreciate those special moments in nature too. Definitely. Definitely. <laughs> I mean, for sure. It's kind of that stress reliever appreciation, you know, just like I find even living, I live in Toronto, so it's a big city even just leaving the city, you feel a sense of calm. But then when you're out in nature with its vastness and, you know, a lot less people, like the further, even more that peace and calm that comes about. Yeah, I noticed a lot of your work is um, from Australia and Iceland and from the air. And I think we'll talk a little bit more about, you know, Ariel specifically in a minute. But I was curious, like, how, how much time are you spending a year traveling to these destinations? Um, let's see. Well, I probably do like one big major trip a year. Okay. I mean, pre-pandemic, that is. <laughs> I do like lots of kind of long weekend trips, that kind of thing. Um, but Australia, you know, I think the first time I did aerials there, I was super lucky because we have um, one of our conferences. So our top 1% of salespeople, um, you know, they pick a really great destination every year. And that year was Australia. So Sweet. I, yeah, I think I must have, I can't remember, probably, maybe it was my first, after my first Iceland aerials trip, and I was like, really hooked. And then there was this opportunity that came up to go to Australia. And I was like, well, I've got to, got to try and do something there, right? I mean, it's such a long trip. Um, so yeah, uh, that was that opportunity. And then, I mean, Australia to me is just so captivating from the air, because it's unlike much of what you see in other places. Um, although now it's interesting with a lot of the drone photography coming out. I think even in the United States, you're starting to see some of those salt lakes, right? Uh, but I just, I found Australia so incredibly captivating. So I, I wanted to go back a few times. Australia is like the mecca of aerial photography. It seems like <laughs> the best aerial photogra photographs and photographers in the world all seem to be in Australia. They, I think they just, they seem to have a really great community, um, like lots of organization, lots of, um, you know, contests and the community just seems really tight knit too. So I, I mean, I think they've got something to emulate there. Yeah. Cool. Well, let's just dive into that. So, you know, how, how and why has aerial photography captivated you? Great question. Um, I think just as we were talking about before, you know, with my day job, it's quite structured. So why I love aerial photography is to me, it's kind of an opportunity to exercise a totally different side of my personality. It's far more spontaneous, instinctive and innate. So like, I mean, before you get into the plane, there's still tons of planning for seasonality, tides if there's water. Um, in Australia, there's lots of fire, um, forest management, so fires. Um, what else? Oh, and in Australia, there's a lot of remote areas. So they might not even have the right aircraft. They might not have the right pilot. There's tons of that stuff to organize before you get there. But once you're up in the air, it's it's kind of a far more freeing experience. So on the ground, because I'm analytical, if you give me the luxury of time, I can overthink things, you know, move things around a little bit here and there and like, you know, uh, like 
weight. Um, but in the air, you kind of have to make decisions much more quickly. You, you have to embrace this notion that you're not going to have a lot of time, that you can just let everything go. Um, and it's this notion I, I kind of like of accessing a combination of my subconscious and my conscious mind when I shoot. And, and I kind of like that freedom. So when I say subconscious, you know, I, I most often shoot at a Cessnas just because like they're the most cost effective and in remote areas they're the most available. Um, so I don't know. I'm sure some people have mentioned this before. What happens is you tell the pilot or the pilot slows down to 100 knots an hour, which is 185 kilometers an hour for those on metric and 115 miles an hour um, for the others. And then you can open up the window to shoot. So that probably sounds faster than it feels, but but you're by no means like standing still. Uh, and so you kind of have like a couple seconds to shoot. And if you don't get your shot that first time, you can reorbit. Um, but every time you reorbit, it's costing you gas, which is limited, and it's costing you money. So you've kind of just got to make a decision like, you know, did you get the shot? Are you going to go? Or are you going to keep on like going, right? So I really like that sense of immediacy and being in the moment. Um, and then I say conscious mind, like that combination, because surprisingly, I don't shoot in continuous. I still shoot in single shot. Um, like at the beginning, you know, when you don't really know and you're kind of nervous and you, I totally shot in uh, continuous, but now like I can still be deliberate. Um, and I, uh, do shoot in single shot. So yeah, I think that's why I like it. And I still am kind of a little bit of an adrenaline junkie. So being up in the air, you know, being in the helicopter or the plane, and then just seeing something for the first time, I, I think that sense of excitement, I think that translates itself into the image. So I think those are the reasons why I like aerial photography so much. Yeah, I could see how if you're an analytic person, that if you couldn't let go of that in the air, you would come home with very few photographs. <laughs> Yeah, like so it's great because you don't have a choice. It's all happening um, so quickly too. It's like you you just almost have to to, to like what you're saying, you almost just have to <clears throat> react to what is exciting you and, and and rely on your instincts in terms of using the camera and capture it as best you can and then not focus on that and move on to the next scene. Yeah, and I love it. Yeah, it's I mean, I uh the second time I went up in the air, which was, I was much more adept with a camera at that point. It was a helicopter flight in Hawaii. Okay. And you know, it's a little different because you're not that far off the ground in the yeah. helicopter. Mm -hmm. So you can use a wide angle and it's a little bit different in terms of composition. Yeah. Uh, but um, man, it's like every three or four seconds, you see something else. Yeah. You're like, oh, that's amazing. What about that? Um, <laughs> I, I found it uh, really hard to focus. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I could totally see that. Well, especially with a helicopter, because you have no restrictions on your field of view, right? Right. Um, whereas when you're in a plane, depending on whether they take the door off or whether you're just opening um, the window, and depending on the actual aircraft itself, um, you have sometimes restrictions, like especially in the Cessna 172, which is the smallest, or 174, um, which is the smallest, I often find I can only have the vertical shot sometimes. So yeah, it depends on the aircraft, but yeah, the helicopter gives you the most options. Oh, it's so much fun though. I, uh, it's on my bucket list for sure to go down to Australia and do some aerial stuff. It just sounds so fun. Are you, uh, are you mostly using like a, like a mid length telephoto, like, like 80 or like what's, yeah, what's your lens of I, choice? My lens of choice is the 85. 
Um, But I usually take two cameras up. So I take my 85. I like the... um, the the fixed focal length just because you can it's a wider open so you can shoot faster and you shoot with like um darker light and still get a decent iso um and then my backup is my uh 2470 oh yeah sure okay yeah i mean in australia i probably would go 50 85 but like say somewhere in iceland where you know you've got the highlands and you've got like those wider mountain shots like i definitely like to have like that that wider lens yeah, it's not like you can do a panorama. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you know what? You can actually pano up in the air. It's surprisingly easier than you would think. But yeah, before you pan it and you're not sure if it's going to work, yeah, I get it for sure. <laughs> yeah, it would be one of those things like, is this, I don't know if this is going to work okay. Yeah. Well, so, I mean, I, I ask this question a lot, but it's, um, I often find that it leads to some really rich conversation and, you know, it's quite simple why do you make photographs? That's a great question. Um, I think I do it for two reasons. Um, the first one I would say is it's almost like a personal diary of sorts. Hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, when we're younger, we're going through school, we learn or we're taught to write journal entries. And then as an adult, I think I really only kept that up on my travels. And that was so that I could, you know, share my stories with my friends. Um But then I find that photography for me, because there is the writing aspect that accompanies it, um, it really captures, you know, how you're evolving visually through the image, but then also emotionally in life, if you can, um, you know, capture that through words. So it's not a diary of a whole life, but it's definitely a diary of me as a photographer. Um, And often, you know, how I process an image or how I write about it depends on what's happening in my life at the time. So I think an image where maybe I can tell this story is uh, my image cyclone. So for anybody that uh, doesn't know that image, if you go to my website, it's my most recent Australian aerials gallery, and it's the 11th image. Um, so when I came back from that trip, I had shortlisted some images, and cyclone was kind of just on my maybe list. Um, you know, I normally, <laughs> sh- yeah, I normally shoot on holidays, so I tend to like to portray the beauty of nature. Um, and Cyclone for me kind of had both beauty, but maybe a sense of tragedy in it. So that's kind of why it was on my maybe list. And then, you know, the pandemic happened. Um, it was so busy at work for six months, you know, I didn't really touch my photography. Um, and then I came back to things. So, you know, six months into the pandemic, that duality of beauty and tragedy actually felt really appropriate to our times. You know, there was so much tragedy in the pandemic, but then there was, you know, stories of human goodwill in response to the pandemic. So then that image felt perfect to me and I could write about it that way. And then, um, you know, I I actually feel like that was the image that people resonated with the most. You know, people wrote they could see the beauty, but they also experienced a sensation of anxiety or turmoil or that it was disturbing. So that's for me, it's a bit of um, like a diary in some ways. Yeah, I think, uh, I think you know, really good n- landscape photography needs to have that, um, that more than just be a beautiful picture, right? It also, I think, needs to um, either tell a story or represent something else. Yeah. So that's, um, yeah, like that. It's so interesting that it literally went from maybe to, hey, this might be my lead image, you know? <laughs> <laughs> Um, yeah. And then I think the second reason I I think I've been hearing this, you know, more and more as we go through the pandemic and, um, hearing what photographers have to say, 
Um, and it's something that I don't know if I would have realized if it hadn't been for the pandemic, but that it's kind of a meditative and a balancing practice. Um, you know, so normally in a non-pandemic world, we have so many different outlets for these kinds of things. And in the pandemic, this has kind of been the main thing for me. Um, and I think the day that I realized it, you know, maybe it wasn't a great day at work. I might have just been not feeling awesome, but I was like, you know, I'm not so stressed that I can't process. So I started processing and, you know, it was a couple hours in, um, I probably just felt like I was making great headway and I just realized I was feeling really joyful. And so, you know, I turn on the tunes, you know, start happy dancing in my condo. I'm super happy. You know, my whole day has changed. And so I think it's just been a really, you know, helpful, uh, and balancing practice during the pandemic. Sure. I mean, you've also probably got a, a pretty difficult job you know, running a, a large corporation. So I can appreciate uh, having some form of artistic release or, you know, something that's completely unrelated to your work that leverages your skills, but also takes advantage of parts of your, who you are that maybe doesn't necessarily get used a lot at work. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. You know, it's interesting while you were saying that is um, I was thinking about that a little bit for myself and what I've come to find in talking to photographers, um, one of the overarching themes that I see kind of emerge is, you know, that 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 nature and landscape photography, in some ways, for a lot of us, provides meaning and purpose for for us. You know, like definitely, I mean, obviously, you know, it's there's other parts of our life, you know, like whether that be family or our jobs or whatever. But um, you know, when I get up and think about what I'm most excited about, it's probably photography, right? Definitely. Well, I think for, you know, adults too, you know, often they they say that time passes more slowly for adults and children. And I don't know that there's a reason, but I remember just a bunch of us were, you know, bantering about it. And we sort of said it's about when you're a child, like every day something that everything is new, right? Yeah. And as an adult, you kind of get into a bit more of a routine, right? So there's less of the new. And what I think photography does for me is it's about this continuous learning journey, right? So whether it's about improving the craft or about how you're writing about something or, you know, what you're researching because of what you're shooting or, you know, all those kinds of things. I think it provides that newness and that growth, which excites us all, right? Right. And I think if we're to stay humble... Um, it literally can provide a lifetime's worth of, of learning experiences. Absolutely, for sure. And that's what's, I think, great about it. You know, you're never at the end. So, so earlier you mentioned that part of photography for you is like almost like a diary of your experiences. And I'm curious, when you look back at your work since 2015, can you see uh, drastic shifts in how you see the world through the camera? Yeah, actually, um, it was really interesting um, because when I was going through my photo archives, so my most recent gallery is kind of going through a bit of those photo archives and um, publishing images that, that hadn't resonated with me back in the day, or maybe that I just didn't have the skills to bring to life. Um, and it was interesting because pre-2018, the way I shot was really different. And so I actually didn't find that images before 2018 um, were ones that resonated with me today, but the ones afterwards, there were things that I saw. And if I was to talk a little bit about my vision and kind of how I got there, because I think 2018 was like that seminal point for me, 
it's kind of one of those happy accidents. Like, you know, I think there's an element of play when you're talking about vision, there's an element of just shooting and really seeing what resonates with you and, you know, looking at other people's work to see what resonates with you. But sometimes there's also, I think maybe happy accidents um, that also happen that kind of shape um, your vision as well. And for me, that happened on my second photography trip to Australia. Uh, so, you know, I did the thing that everybody tells you not to do, which is shoot with a new camera. So, you know, of course <laughs> I mirrored all my settings. I thought I was good, but, um, I think I forgot to turn off my electronic front curtain. So I thought my 50 millimeter was broken. It was fine. It was just the setting. But as a result, I only had my 85. And then it turned out when I came back and I saw my images, I mean, it was my favorite set of images that I had ever shot. And artistically, I'd always been more of a natural intimate shooter, but you know, I still wanted to diversify. But in looking at these images, you know, I really felt that they were distinct. I felt they were really me. And I realized that I was finding my own voice. And it was also the time that I realized, you know, while I love being in the landscape, as an artist, I really like to use the shapes and patterns of the landscape a little bit more almost as my medium, rather than as a subject, if that makes sense. Mm, um, tell me a little bit more about that. Yeah, so it's, it's more like, um, because everything is abstracted a little bit, it's more about the shapes in the landscape that are creating an overall pattern, rather than it being really important that people understand what kind of landscape it is. Like oftentimes, you know, somebody will look at um, a photograph of mine, and they'll be like, Oh, my gosh, what is that? And then if they get up close, uh, they'll say, Oh, my gosh, I can see the ripples. Oh, oh, my gosh, is that water? Like, you know, they have this sudden realization of what it is. But because it's from that aerial perspective, they don't get that right away, because it's a bit of a foreign perspective. Mm -hmm. So yeah, so that's, um, and it's interesting, you asked too, because I, you know, every time I publish a gallery, I'm always like, Oh, my gosh, I love it. But, you know, now going back pre-2018, I still do love some of my images. But, um, you know, I, I, as a whole, I feel like 2018 onwards is a little bit more um, where I am today. Um, and so I don't think necessarily your vision changes like daily or weekly or monthly. But if you kind of look back in increments of years, you can really see that shift. One of the things that I've been doing recently, and it was mostly because I had a hard drive crash, so I was trying to make sure I didn't lose some images. And we've also been doing some promotion for this competition, so I've been trying to like look for images that would work for promoting the competition and things of that nature. But so I'm looking at all these old photos of mine, and and what I've come to realize is like there's some pretty good shots that I never even considered um, editing, and and it's so it's interesting how. You know, there must have been something at the at that moment of time that caught your attention. But then when you got home and edited it, you're like, yeah, that doesn't look very good. And it's interesting, you know, like if you wait like three or four or five years and you look at it again, there's stuff in there that's like, oh, my gosh, why didn't I never edit this? Yeah, definitely. I mean, even one of the images from the new sort of archive um, grouping was Murmurations. Um and, you know, it's only in the last year or two, I've been seeing a lot of those starling photos, you know, those groups oh, of birds yeah. that, yeah. like, I, I just, I didn't even have a reference for that before, right? So now I have a reference and I could see that in my imagery. Um, then embrace, you know, I think with all the social distancing, like the hug, feeling, feeling, um, seeing that, I was like, oh my gosh, yes. <laughs> so I think sometimes there's also references, but uh -huh. then sometimes it's just your visual language has, um, you know, probably improved or progressed. 
Sure. Yeah. It's, it's super interesting to look at old shots and, and a lot of times I'm like, what was I thinking here? It doesn't really work, <laughs> but you know, sometimes you find one you're like, Oh yeah, there's, there's some really good trash in this dumpster. <laughs> <laughs> it's not trash. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's a hidden treasure. Mm-hmm. Um, so one of the things I wanted to ask you about, you know, in regards to the aerial work that you're doing, especially in Australia, and you had mentioned it in one of your social media posts a while ago, was that you're starting to become a little bit more aware of what is causing the beauty in some of these photos is actually like man-made destruction of the land. Mm-hmm. And you were, it's if I, if I remember correctly, you were kind of torn as to whether or not you wanted to even bring bring it up in conversation or as part of the caption of the photo, because I think maybe part of it is you didn't want to detract from people's uh, idea of the image. But I was curious, um, you know, how do some of these aerial photographs for you relate to how you're perceiving some of these landscapes and, and the connection that you have with them? Yeah. Okay. So I think you're talking about the uh, gold mining tailings. Uh, yeah. Tailings ponds and the yeah, gold t- mining yeah, yeah. areas. Yeah, mm-hmm. absolutely. Yeah. So I think it might've been kind of the inverse. Um, so okay. I think I mentioned, like we talked a little bit about how, because I do this um, on vacation, you know, I, I kind of um, really like to focus a little bit more on the beauty of things. But we were in an area in Western Australia. The weather had been perfect the entire time. We got to this last place. Um, and I knew like the features of the area were quite delicate. So I knew it was going to be hard to shoot. And But I kind of had felt like, okay, I've evolved enough as a photographer. I'm willing to challenge myself, right? I'll get great images or I won't, and it'll be a good challenge. Um, now, when we got there... It was really dappled light kind of conditions, which I normally love, but because the features were so refined, it was actually really hard to shoot the natural landscape. So we only had three days there. You know, we waited it out till the third day and third day was still the same. So, you know, the other, the only other option in the area, so you had to adapt, was shooting the altered landscapes. Mm -hmm. So um, I was unhappy about that at the time, but then I became happy about it afterwards. (laughs) Um, And so when we got back, um, you know, I think it was 14 months from the day that we shot that I released those. Part of that was the pandemic, but part of it was also kind of really struggling with what to say about those images, because I really didn't want to produce images that were beautiful and and not have something appropriate to say about them, right? Mm -hmm. Um, And part of the reason why I've always kind of steered away a little bit from altered landscapes is because I... I I am the type of person that really feels like I would like to know everything that I need to know so that I can have the proper activist voice around it. Like what's the right point of view. Um, And I Uh just knew that like, you know, it's hard, just you can't figure it all out from researching on the internet. You need to interview people and that just wasn't going to happen. And I, I didn't want to beautify something that wasn't beautiful. Right. Sure. And and so then it was really interesting because there was this exhibit submission that came up and it was called Seeking the Periphery. And it really kind of helped me find the language um, to feel comfortable about releasing those images. Um, so it helped me find the language to talk about how living in a city where we are so removed and disassociated um, from the means of production that we can unintentionally ignore what's happening to the earth to feed our consumption. 
Um, and you know what, there's no easy answers per se, you know, we've got a balanced jobs economy and the environment. But in that sense, I didn't feel like I had to have all the answers about what was right for the gold mining industry. But I felt I was framing something about the human condition, which I thought could powerfully resonate, right? You know, the fact that it's not that we don't care, but we live in cities, and we just, we don't see some of what happens um, out there. So that's what allowed me to feel comfortable to release those images. And I really didn't know what to expect. I mean, it was very different work than I had ever released before. But then I actually had a friend from university and I didn't know in the time that we had last connected that he had actually worked, he was an engineer and he had actually worked on uh, building those tailings ponds. Um, So he wrote, yeah, he wrote, Carolyn, amazing photo of the tailings dam. It works for me on multiple levels and probably on some that you didn't necessarily intend. Um, but it resonates me due to my time building tailings dams in the gold mining industry. Never has a photo captured my internal conflict of love of nature against my need and compulsion to build infrastructure. And then he later wrote me um, about how after one of those tailings uh, ponds is created, how it didn't really quite work. Um, and it was really disturbing for him. So he actually quit his job. Um, he now only does mission-based work in renewable energies. And how seeing those images really kind of helped him process, you know, the emotions that he had gone through um, in that journey. And I was like, it was so touching to know that one of my images could do that um, for someone. And so it was... Um, it was just, it was a really rewarding experience. Um, it taught me to be more open to photographing beyond just the natural landscape. And it kind of taught me the power of a photograph. I wanted to pause for a moment to tell listeners about a unique and exclusive offer available only to you. I am offering one-on-one customized outdoor experiences where I help you discover and reconnect with nature through the lens. These adventures are only available a few times per year and they're booking fast, so reach out soon to reserve your spot. Check out the show notes for more information. Okay, let's get back to our great chat with Carolyn. What I what I really liked about that is that it's, you know, I think a powerful photograph like that, its goal isn't to answer a question, it's to ask a question. Yeah. Right. And it's, you're not, and you're not saying that you have the answer, mm-hmm. but you're, you're raising the question for others to, to contemplate. Yeah. And that's kind of what I, I struggled around because at the beginning I thought I need to have an answer if I'm going to post. <laughs> right. Um, totally. And it, totally. And then I kind of figured a way around, okay, no, now I can talk about the human condition to see how that resonates. So yeah, it was a journey, but it was a really positive one. You know, I grew a lot through it. I learned a lot. Um, and um yeah really connected with with um people on it so it was yeah. it was a good experience well nice nicely done i'm glad you had the uh the bravery to 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 release the images mm-hmm. thank you yeah so along those same li- same lines i'm curious you know what do your photos mean to you personally oh interesting i think that you know minor white's quote um that all portrait all pictures are self portraits I feel like um, almost all my images, I I feel like there's something about that. I think the aesthetic is is highly personal. Um, And then I think that for me, with all of the images, especially because they are abstract, I feel like there needs to be the story so that people can relate. 
Um, I mean, people may naturally relate just based on the abstraction, but they may not. And so for me, it's about really sharing, you know, what I feel and what I kind of feel like those things express. Um, And so it's, I think, sharing my version of what the world, how I see the world through those images. I think that's what it is. It's, it's, yeah, it's a lot about self-expression. It's a lot about continuous learning and sharing, you know, my journey on the earth through images and words. You know, one of the things that I like about your, your, your style of photography is, is I think for viewers, it can mean something completely different than what you are trying to express or feel. You know, the viewer can say, oh, that's nice that you thought it was about this, but for me, it's about this. You know, I think that's really cool. And, you know, I'm always conflicted because I think in the art world, they say it's better not to say what you think. It's better to ask questions, right? (laughs) To uh, not clarify, not necessarily to confuse, but, you know, to ask questions. So I'm always slightly conflicted about (laughs) which I do. (laughs) And I, I think on my Instagram posts, I'm more okay with like kind of saying what I see or giving context sometimes in the you know art submissions and exhibits and it's a little bit different Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. yeah well maybe that's a perfect segue because i know you had mentioned that you do submit a lot of work to galleries and, and exhibitions and things of that nature and i was curious how has studying art history and interacting with those galleries helped you describe your work yeah great question um So I think part of your evolution as an artist definitely comes in the visual language, but a lot of it also comes with how you write about the work. And I think my progression has definitely been helped by interacting with gallerists, other artists, and then making these submissions. So there's probably a couple phases that I can talk about. The first phase and like my first artist statement, it was, you know, all about abstract expressionism. Probably no surprise, but um, the first time I interacted with a gallerist, he immediately characterized my work in the New York abstract expressionist movement of the 1940s. He specifically referenced Helen Frankenthaler. Now, of course, I came home and I Googled Helen Frankenthaler. <laughs> <You're> like, <"Who's> that? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I didn't necessarily see a her specifically in my work, but you know, I tried to learn a lot more about abstract expressionism and what really resonated with me was this notion of, you know, the use of gestures. Like, you know, we obviously think about Jackson Pollock and his like paintbrush and the use of gestures in the subconscious mind. And so for me immediately, I was like, Oh, the plane is the thing for me creating the gestures. And then the interaction of the landscape with my mind and the camera is what brings, you know, the subconscious to the conscious in in the final image. And um, all of those artists were really interested in creating an emotional impact. Um, And I would say, you know, all of us that have been doing this for multiple years and seen tens or hundreds of thousands of images over the course of time, you know, the images that stay with us are those that have that emotional impact. So a lot of that resonated with me. And so my very first artist statement was all about abstract expressionism. And then the second phase, which I'm in right now, it's all about the feminine sublime. So after that experience with that gallerist, um, I started working with my friend Jess more regularly. And my friend Jess Tallman, she's a working artist here in Toronto. She's got a master's of fine art. She's been really helpful in terms of understanding art history, the movements in which you know my work is situated in. And I'm super lucky because she is also an abstract photographer. And she sort of works at the intersection of architecture, sculpture, and street photography. So to have her, you know, really be able to 
helped me, especially she's been working for many years here in Toronto and also in New York. So she was encouraging me to think about the sublime in my work. And I really struggled with this concept at the beginning because all the readings I had come across um, had pretty traditional definitions for the concept. And I kind of found them a little bit alienating at the beginning. So I know a couple of your guests have mentioned the sublime too. Um, but, it, you know, in terms of the definition, it kind of starts back with Edmund Burke in the 18th century. Um, and then it's evolved through European and American schools. But over the course, if you kind of like, you know, condense it all together, um, it's this notion that nature inspires awe, terror, and that there's also a sense of vastness or infiniteness and dramatic scale. And that ultimately it evokes divinity, the unrepresentable and or transcendence. And in some representations, it's also this notion of mankind's need to dominate his terror. And so all of these concepts, you know, for me, were just a little bit too extreme. <laughs> and, <laughs> you know, I related to the concepts of awe and like unrepresentable, but not to terror. And then I felt like, you know, divinity and transcendence, maybe just a bridge too far. So, um, sure, especially if you're, if you're not like super spiritual or religious or, or whatever. Yeah. So I was like, I don't, I don't get this yet. So then it was, um, so Jess is really good at sort of helping me identify, oh, this, this application, like this actually has relevance. Sometimes, you know, the art speak is not as clear to the non-art educated. <laughs> um, so yeah, she sent me this application for an exhibit, which was looking to highlight the themes of ecofeminism. And then when I started doing research on the ecofeminism, I came across this notion of the feminine sublime. Um, and the intersection of those two today is like, kind of what makes up my current artist statement. So unlike the traditional sublime, the feminine sublime focuses on this dimension of the unrepresentable or the otherworldly. And it doesn't necessarily seek to master or to appropriate or dominate, but kind of takes up a position of respect to nature. And then if you add in the notions of ecofeminism, it's kind of this departure from the view of nature is in a mechanized world where it's only used for consumption, but it's rather about, you know, the coexistence between humanity and nature where we develop that sustainable relationship. And, you know, if you look at my imagery, especially my aerial imagery, when you essentialize it, it's really about, you know, the interplay of water, sand, salt, and sediment. And it's pretty organic um, and cyclical where patterns are formed, dispersed, and then regenerated. So it kind of illustrates that basic cycle of nature in the landscape. But, and we talked about this a little bit before, because it's taken up from that aerial perspective, people can't immediately comprehend it. So it kind of feels otherworldly. And it's always a surprise to them when they, it's just water, sand, salt, and earth. Um, so in that sense, my work is all about transforming ordinary elements into those beautiful moving images that give us a sense or a possibility of the otherworldly, and it kind of shifts your perception of what's possible. And it, if Jess had not kind of told me to do more readings about the sublime and sent me that exhibit, I kind of never would have been able to get to the place where my artist statement is today. So that's why I've really enjoyed it. It's been this great kind of learning experience. And in some ways I was already doing this, but I didn't have the language to describe what I was doing. Yeah, it's interesting. What I was immediately struck struck by with, as you were talking about this is, uh, I I was curious if 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 um, this this new I don't know I I, I just the the metaphor I'm going to use is like you're wearing a new pair of shoes that okay. fit really well. Like it, oh, these fit nice. Yeah. You know, the, you know, but I'm curious 
are you, I mean, maybe it's too soon to know, but um, I could see that on one hand as being, being able to be very focused mm-hmm. and, you know, like this is the, these are the things that I'm looking for when I'm out shooting, but I could also see it as a constraint in terms of, oh, this thing doesn't fit within that pair of shoes that I'm wearing and therefore I'm not going to make an image of it. So I'm curious, have you felt that, uh, I'm having a hard time articulating this, but have you felt that, that, that opposition? Tension yet? Yeah, that tension. I see where you're going. And I think that if this was the only thing I shot, you'd be right. So like, you know, it's interesting because I, I basically pick places to shoot just based on like, you know, what I'm compelled by at the time. And I then create projects out of those afterwards, you know, a more focused artist and, you know, maybe some people more in the fine art world would probably create their project and then go shoot to it. Right. <laughs> and I'm, I'm not at that point yet. Like I still like for me, because it's about travel and exploration and the journey. Um, I, I just pick places that I really want to go and that I'm interested in. And then I ultimately create projects after the fact. I think probably a more focused artist would do it the other way around, like pick the project and then pick the place to go. Um, or and like may- have several projects that they're working on at the same time. And then you're like, oh, that fits this project. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And, you know, there, there's probably something to be said for that. I, I'm not at that point yet. Um, so I haven't, yeah, like I haven't felt constrained yet. And to me, I think your artist statement is a point in time. Like, I think it will change. Like, you know, I went from abstract expressionism. Now it's the feminine sublime. Maybe it will be something different over time, but I think it's an important point you bring up because, you know, my hesitancy in shooting the altered landscapes was because I was like, Oh, I don't do that. But then I realized, you know what, it was a powerful learning experience. So I do think it's really important to stay open-minded. I think it probably just depends on what your goals are, right? Probably sometimes if if you're more of a commercially based artist and you're thinking about marketability, it's probably important to have a thing that you're known for. I think that if you're not necessarily doing it for that, um, then you can probably have a little bit more breadth. Yeah, it's hard. I mean, I, I've I've been thinking a lot about that for myself recently because you know, earlier in my career, I was more known for you know grand mountain vistas and um, night photography. Like that's what I was known for. And probably within the last I don't know five years, I've strayed much more into you know smaller scenes and you know fall color stuff and and you know aerial and it's like I've, I've gone away from what I've, you know, my roots and right. in a lot of ways, it's really fun. It feels good and it's awesome. But on the other time, on the other side of it, it's like, Oh, I'm kind of losing that, you know, no, no notoriety a little bit. <laughs> right. Well, yeah, and so I think it goes back to purpose, right? Like, why do you, sure. why do you shoot? And is that okay? Yeah, I think it's okay. But mm-hmm. I think at the end of the day, you got to be okay with um, some of the co- unintended consequences that might bring mm-hmm. and just be okay with that. Yep. And if you're not okay with that, then maybe reevaluate how you do it. Exactly. Yeah. Cool. So how we describe our images can shift over time, as you were just talking about earlier. Mm-hmm. And I'm curious how you currently describe or think about your work and how that's changed. How does that change how you create the work? Oh, interesting. So part of what I was, I'm getting at here is... Um, 
Are you conscious about how you're going to describe it when you're in the moment of shooting? Or does the description and how you're thinking about it happen later? I think I'm going to have to say later. I don't know if it's always the case. Um, so earlier in my journey, um, I probably would process more closely to the time that I shot. Mm -hmm. Um, not necessarily right away. Like it would probably be a month by the time I would, you know, release a gallery after shooting it, but increasingly just with, you know, shooting more and having just more work demands, um, you know, that's kind of gone out over time. Like at first it was three months and it was six months. And then, you know, with the pandemic, like, I think it was over a year. Um, and so by the time I got around to processing and then to writing, um, it was so long after, um, I had shot that, you know, really it was more about what I was going through and experiencing and how I was interacting with the images, um, a year later. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah. Have you found that one of those approaches works better than the other or is there pros and cons? Um, hmm. Well, I think that when you wait longer, you have like the images that you might be attached to that maybe objectively might not be as good. You have a little bit more separation yeah. from, so yeah. you can be a little more objective <laughs> yeah. a year later. Um, I mean, I my process in the field, uh, especially with aerials, because you're shooting so many images, I like to, um, while I'm in the field, that night, I like to just look at everything, just make sure they're sharp, there's nothing wrong. Or, you know, if I was struggling in the field, I, I would be like, mm, what's wrong with these images? Like, what can I do differently? How can I shoot better? Mm -hmm. So I like to do that. And then I just like to shortlist the ones that resonate with me. Spoken like a true analytic. <laughs> yes. <laughs> there's so many images that by the time I get back from work, like, you know, uh, from the trip, I just feel like it's easier to then manage going through your shortlist images, you know? That's kind of how I think about it. Uh, so, you know, there is an aspect of what resonates with me at the time in the initial shortlist, but then later I do kind of have a little bit more objectivity. Sure. Um, and then I think there's also, um, you know, this is probably where constructive critique comes in. Um, I often work with David and he'll give me, David Thompson, that is, I think many people would know David, um, that are your listeners. Uh, and so it's kind of also another layer of constructive critique where he, you know, wasn't there himself. So he is completely freed from any kind of emotional um, attachment and can just objectively give the critique as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah. What, uh, what types of things are you looking to get out of a, out of a critique from somebody else? I think it's just kind of a second set of eyes. Um, is there anything in the processing that I've missed um, is there anything that I can strengthen, um, in terms of the composition? Um, sometimes it's also about the gallery flow. Um, you know, the, the, yeah, like, is it the right pacing? Um, you know, is it oh, leading? Wow. I, that's something I'm, I don't even think about. <laughs> <laughs> that's kind of a combination of David and, uh, Jess, but like Jess will talk about how, you know, it's like you kind of have to, every image can't, you know, it's kind of like those voice critiques, right? You can't be shouting everything. So there's yeah, kind yeah, of yeah, got to yeah. be an ebb and a flow too. Um, so. Right. And like of, two images that look very similar probably shouldn't be back to back. Right. Kind of yeah, opposition, yeah. like sim similarity, opposition, um, you know, color, sizing. Um, so those all kind of go into, um, you know, the final product. 
Right. So you so you very much see yourself um, as someone who the final gallery that you produce is the final product versus each individual image is the final product. I think there's a little bit of both. Like okay. so for for Instagram, I think it's more about the single image. Um, for my galleries, it's definitely about the collective. And then for the exhibit submissions, it's definitely about like even a smaller set and the collective. Um, yeah. So like, I think it depends on the medium, but in general, I've always liked, and this was even before I did landscape photography. Um, I liked to tell a story about a place. And I think that's a little bit harder to do with a single image. Um, and I also think with abstract and intimate photography, um, sometimes, you know, more images can tell a more powerful story. Well, and not only that, but um, maybe I'm just speaking for myself, but I feel like the people like you and David who can do that, and I know Eric Benick does that type of stuff as well, but it's it's not easy. And I think, um, you know, pr- producing work in, in galleries or, you know, thematic, you know, very tight uh, galleries is, is something I greatly appreciate. Um, one of the things that we introduced in our in the Natural Landscape Photography Awards that we're creating is we actually have a whole project submission, so of six to ten images around a theme, and okay. it's very open ended in terms of like, you know, whether it be about a subject or tell a story or you know whatever it is about. That's up to the photographer to decide. But I think as our team on uh, for the competition, we we've come to recognize that that is a is a super awesome skill. And I think there's a lot of demand for people to want to see images uh, presented in that style. Yeah, I think it's great. Um, yeah, because you, you have to, I think that's when writing actually starts to come more into it. And then yeah. you kind of have to think more about what it means as a collective. Um, right. So yeah, I think I think it's a powerful tool. I think it's a great idea. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I, I'm looking forward to uh, seeing your projects. Okay. <laughs> Noted. <laughs> You know, I actually, um, I've noticed, um, like, so there's another contest that I do enter and it's kind of more cross-disciplinary. But I had noticed that um, most of the winners actually, because they're kind of given the option to um, apply with singles or multiples. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I noticed that almost all the winners were multiples. Mm -hmm. And so last year was the first year I actually applied with a series and it was like the best I had ever done in that contest. So I think you're on to something. Yeah, I think there's there's something to be said for that. I think mostly, guys. I think it's hard harder to do. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you to, have to, to be do consistent. Well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, cool. So you know, I'm sure people are sick and tired of hearing about the pandemic, but I really still would like to hear your thoughts on how photography and social media have helped you through the pandemic. Yeah, great question. You know, I don't want to glorify social media in the sense that certainly on the political realm, you know, it's bad for disinformation and polarization. And and artistically, I I am aware that obviously there is a bit of a homogenization of the image. But what I really wanted to say is, you know, the community of landscape photographers during the pandemic, I feel like has been so incredibly supportive, Um, especially over the holiday period. I think it was kind of the peak period for me. There were so many... um, photographers that were writing articles about other artists. Um, and I should shout out Christian Hoiberg, Kai Hornung, and Hans Gunnar, I hope I say this right, Aslaxen, who wrote articles to include me amongst their inspirational photographers. Um, and there were so many other generous photographers, you know, that had included me in lists and lots of other photographers in lists. 
I think maybe because more photographers were at home, they had more time to look at emerging photographers' work. And then I think separately, maybe there's kind of like an emerging group. Maybe it's that whole 2015 cohort, Matt. <laughs> you know, we're all, say, we're all Kai, finding Kai, each Kai other. Was, I think Kai started in 2015. <laughs> oh, did he? I think okay. so. <laughs> yeah. And so everyone was just being so incredibly generous with sharing work. You know, to me, it really felt like that virtual hug I needed in the socially distanced world. So um, I know that social media kind of, it gets a lot of negativity, but I just really wanted to say like how I think it's been really positive, especially within um, the photographic community. Yeah, it's, um, it's a really great community, especially, you know, if we treat each other with respect. And the hard thing about social media is that I think you know, sometimes when, I don't know, meteor subjects get brought up, um, there's a, uh, I feel like people mischaracterize passion and people trying to convey their thoughts with someone who's being negative or argumentative. And and I think, you know, when you're having a conversation face to face, it doesn't usually feel that way. It's more like, oh, they're just really excited and passionate. Yeah. So, and, and, but that I doesn't mean, come through in the typing, you know? So it's like, it's like everybody should have to video video chat or something because so I can't remember what the stat is, but I know this from our, our trainers at work that so much of the communication actually comes through the visual, uh, like body language, voice and tone, like that kind of thing. And so that's missing on social, which is why these things happen. I think. Yeah. I think it's like 80%. Yeah. It's really high. Incredibly high. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. 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 Well, cool. Yeah. I've been, I've been really enjoying the community, especially through the pandemic as well. And, you know, I'm, I'm lucky enough to be involved in a lot of different spheres of the community and it's been fun to be a part of. And I agree. It's, it's definitely helped me weather the storm as well, as well. (laughs) Yeah, for sure. Yeah. All right. Well, so wrapping things up, who would you recommend for the podcast? Okay. Well, before I make a recommendation, I just did want to shout out a couple people. So the people that I think probably are the reason why you invited me. So Tara Workman and Jeremy Jackson, who said they wanted to hear what I had to say. So thanks to them both. Um, and then to David Thompson, just for being a fabulous mentor throughout this journey. So the photographers that I would like to hear from that haven't been on your podcast yet. Um, the first person I'll say is uh, Tony Spencer or Anthony Spencer. So I think before I even started photography, there were, you know, three photographers work that I loved. And it was Tony Spencer, Sarah Marino, who's been on and Marcel Van Easton. Um, But yeah, so Tony Spencer, for sure. And then Tony, uh, because he knew I really liked the intimate landscape. um, He had put me on to David Ward. And so I really love David's work. And then I noticed I've been, you know, saving a lot of images on Instagram, so I can share them in stories. And I noticed that I really save a lot of black and white photographs. I don't do it myself. Um, so I'm going to recommend Huibo Huo. Um, yeah. And then um, there's another woman that I've just recently started following, and she has the most amazing and interesting and ethereal agave plant photos in black and white. And her name is Karen Waller. Um, and then can I do something slightly unorthodox, Matt? I want to recommend a non-photographer. That's <laughs> totally allowed. Okay. So his name is James Terrell, um, and I think he's an artist that most landscape photographers will be intrigued by, which is why I think he might be relevant. So he would say the history of art is the history of depicting light. But for him, his medium is light itself. 
And since there is no object or image to speak of, his art is all about perception. So the seeing of your seeing. So in some of his earlier works, he had skylights, which were cutouts in the ceiling of an indoor or an outdoor building. And in general, he liked this notion of bringing the sky closer to you. So if you're in a building with like a skylight, effectively, the sky feels like it's right there, right? And so he would say, if I change, oh, he would say, we think the sky is blue, but we actually award it its color. So he would say, if I change your context of vision or the light within the atmosphere within the chamber, then I can change the color of the sky. So he was a perceptual psychologist. I don't know if that resonates with you because I know you have a psychology background. Um, So now where this becomes relevant to landscape photographers is that his life's workers, magnum opus, is rodent crater. Um, And this is where, you know, he takes his perception into nature. So he literally bought a volcano in the Southwest, just outside of Flagstaff, Arizona. (laughs) It gets even better. Rodent Crater is about getting closer to the cosmos or the universe by bringing astronomical events and objects into your own personal space. So he bored a hole into the volcano. So it effectively acts as a telescope. It's basically a naked eye observatory. He's bored out 20 different chambers underneath the volcano. Some of them have that sky or celestial vaulting. Um, It spans one and a half miles in diameter. And each of those chambers is supposed to be a contemplative, meditative, and transformative space, whereas art asks you really to make an effort. You've got to be immersed in it. You experience it, and then you reflect on how you perceive the world because he brings in the light and shapes from the cosmos into those chambers. So it's totally non-vicarious art. It works at the nexus of light, art, science, culture, and nature. I think it sounds so amazing and I can't wait to see it. It's not open yet, so he's still building it. This is like, um, I think he bought it in the 70s. So it's wasn't meant to be his life's work, but it's become his life's work. Um, I, I don't know if I'm doing it justice. I'll send you a link, Matt, so like you'll be able to visualize it. But I just think it will be so captivating and so interesting. And I know so many photographers are in the Southwest, probably never too far from Flagstaff. So we'll have an opportunity to see it um, when they shoot there, when it opens. That sounds like a meow wolf on crack. (laughs) (laughs) I I think it will be kind of transformative. So I'm really curious to see it. That sounds amazing. (laughs) Wow, cool. Well, man, Sherilyn, this has been awesome. Great. You've been a fantastic guest and it's it's so awesome how quickly the time goes by. I know. It's been great to chat. It's nice to see, it's nice to see you this time. I know. It's so much better. <laughs> it's so much better to do it this way too. Definitely. Well, thanks again to Carolyn Chang for joining me on the podcast today and for sharing your thoughts and your journey with us today. I highly recommend you head over to her website to see her amazing work. You can find it at carolynchang.com. If you enjoyed our conversation today, you can catch our bonus discussion over on Patreon, where Carolyn talks about gallery representation. For as little as $5 per month, you can access these bonus episodes and help keep the show running. Any help is appreciated. If you're already supporting the podcast on Patreon, thank you. If you don't have an extra dime to spare to help us out, there's a couple other things you can do. I would be honored if you left the show a five-star review or rating on Apple Podcasts. I'm also looking for people who might be interested in helping lead After Parties on Clubhouse to discuss each episode with me and each week's guest when possible, or to just have a nice chat about the episode with your fellow listeners 
and maybe develop some new relationships. If you're interested in this, head to my website and drop me a note. All right, well, that's all for now. Thanks for stopping in, collaborating with us, and listening. See you next week.